please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, I'll be reading Ecclesiastes 4 through 5, verse 7, which is found on page 555 in the Black Bibles around the room. When I am finished, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And in response, we'll say, thanks be to God, which is just our way of expressing thanksgiving to God for revealing himself through his word. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's, king's place. There was no end of all people all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase 
and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the book of Ecclesiastes. This book tells us real talk about suffering and confusion and loneliness that life under the sun can bring. But we thank you for the hope that you have given us in your son, Jesus, and this family of believers that we can walk through life with. Help us to overcome our pride and to lift up each other. Help us to slow down, to open our ears, Father, that we may hear what the Spirit is saying. And we lift up Pastor Kyle to you this morning, and I ask that you would guide his words to bring your truth into our lives. In your name, amen. First, you were born, and you spend your whole life striving. And then, the end. Turns out it's good news. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? My name is Kyle. If you are a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. Uh, it's a really an honor to have you here. I want to commend you for your courage because I know that coming to church a lot of times can be a very scary thing, and you're here, and so you did it. You're doing it, and it might be a little weird for you to stand in a group of people and sing, and you might be like, what's that all about? Uh, what that is is Christians, um, ever since Bible times, have been singing praises to God because number one, he's worthy of our praise. Amen, church? And number two, it's a way in which we drill the truths of scripture and what God has done for us into our hearts. There's just some power that music has over us that it can communicate to our hearts, not just our heads. And um, that's why we sing. And so that's why it's important for you to sing. And, and if you're a Christian and you've been coming and it's like, you're like, I don't want to sing because it's awkward and I have a bad voice. Sing! It's good. It's good to sing to the Lord. And God loves the sound of your voice. So we're in Ecclesiastes. And this is a, a totally uplifting book, isn't it, church? No, it's a, it's a book that just deals with the complexities of the brokenness of this life. And uh, we're calling the book, And Then the End, because as we just saw in that little sermon bumper video, uh, that this book really highlights the truth that you spend your whole life striving, your whole life building something, but at the end of the day, we all die. And so that leaves us asking the question then, what is the purpose of our life? What's, what's my purpose? What's my meaning? What's, why am I here? And the book tries to answer those questions. And today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we get to a section of literature where uh, the guy who's speaking is, is, is called the preacher. And he's kind of just sitting back as an old man smoking a pipe, commenting about things that he sees in life. If you notice right there in verse 1, he, it says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. He's commenting on what he sees. Um, a few weeks ago, my kids were trying to get the iPad, which we put on top of the refrigerator, so they couldn't get it. And we, we put it up there, and we pushed it way back. And so they, they pulled out the, um, the tall chairs, the bar stools, and they're, like, climbing up there, and they're, like, trying to grab it. And they knock it off, and it lands on the corner. And you know what happens when your device lands on the corner, right? The screen shatters. 
And so they're like, oh no, it's broken. We'll never be able to read again, you know? And I'm like, you're gonna, you'll be fine. <laughs> and we open it up and I turn it on, it still works. And I pull up the pictures and I'm like, oh, there's, you know. But now the difference is, is what I see is veiled in brokenness. Everything I pull up, it has the same qualities that it had before, but now it's just covered in brokenness. And essentially, that's what the preacher here is saying. He's saying, I'm looking at this world, and here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a world that is veiled in brokenness. And that's not how God created the world. If you read the beginning of the Bible, God created the world beautiful and good and perfect. But then sin entered the world, and, so, and it shattered everything. And so now all experiences, this phrase, under the sun on earth, has an element of brokenness, of loneliness, of oppression, and it's not working or it's not created as it ought to be. This is why you wake up every morning and you kind of just feel like something's wrong. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with me. And you're right because there's brokenness. But the good news of this passage is there's hope for the broken. So the bad news is that life under the sun is broken, but the good news is that there is hope for the broken in heaven. Amen? There's hope for the broken in heaven. So what this guy does as he's speaking here is he, he talks about four types of brokenness. Um, the first type of brokenness is the brokenness of power. Then he talks about the, the brokenness of work. Then he talks about the brokenness of community. And then he talks about the brokenness of religion. So we're going to go through these together, but I just warn you, he starts out really, really dark, like really emo, and I just want you to just hang in there till the end. Can you guys do that? You have to pay attention till the end. Don't give up on me as we're going through this text. Um, so first he starts with the brokenness of power. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, that's here on this earth, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done, on this, done under the sun. So he says the first type of brokenness he sees is the brokenness of power. The reason I get that is because he says, I'm looking out and I see oppressions. And it says in verse 1, on the side of their oppressors, there was power. A, a better way to translate that was, from the oppressors, power came forth. And, and so whenever power is broken and misused, it leads to abuse and oppression. And he identifies here that there's lots of different types of oppressions in this world. So if you think about it, there's oppression um, politically. There's oppression in governments, warring throughout, church, throughout the world, throughout history, the history of the world. There's oppression in family systems. Many of you have been abused by the people who are supposed to protect you and love you. There's oppression in the church, spiritually. There's oppression, uh, there's lots of different forms of oppression. Sometimes oppression is a physical oppression. Sometimes it's a verbal oppression. Sometimes it's a spiritual oppression or an emotional oppression. There's lots of different types of misuse of power 
that leads to abuse and brokenness in this world. And his conclusion is really dark. He said, well, after I started seeing how much oppression there is, here's what I realized. The happy people under the sun are the ones in the grave. Those are the ones who are really happy. It'd be better to be dead than to be living because of how much oppression is in this world. And you're like, that's dark. But all the depressed people are like, that's right. (laughs) Then he goes even further. He says, better yet, it would be better to not even have been born at all. This reminds me of the words of Job when he's like, curse the breast that nursed me and the womb that brought me into this world. When life gets this hard and difficult and when you feel and face abuse and there's nothing you can do about it, you get this text. You get it. You get it. And for us, sometimes it's hard to get. And I think it's hard for us to get sometimes because as Americans, we live such sheltered lives. But I'm actually not sure that's entirely the case. I think it's just as Americans, we're really good at distracting our minds. We're really good at just not focusing on the oppression that's there and turning and watching Netflix, turning and watching another comedy special, going out and doing another hobby. And so the oppression that is here, the oppression that's in our city, the oppression that's in our homes and in our government and in the world, we're just, it's too much for our souls to bear, so we look elsewhere. But what the preacher is doing in this text, he says, no, look, look at the oppression here. You cannot be somebody who's following God in a broken world if you're not willing to admit this world is really broken. I'll never forget the woman who sat in our living room as we were having community group and she said, I will never speak my mind here because when I spoke my mind as a child, my dad took off his belt and beat me across the face with his belt buckle side. I've had several people sit in my office and tell me of the horrible abuse that their father or their mother did to them. Or their husband. We've sent missionaries over to Romania to to help and to hold uh, children in orphanages and they came back weeping saying, the babies in Romania don't cry because they know that if they cry, nobody's gonna come and pick them up because there's such governmental oppression there that there's, that there's no even children, there, there's no parents to, to love these children. I've heard of spiritual abuse in the church and there's people who go to this church who, who, who were going to a church and they had a friend who got cancer and that, that friend passed away even though they prayed and prayed and prayed for that person to be healed and then the, the pastor said this, it's her fault that she died because she didn't have enough faith. Like, aren't you tired of just facing the oppression in this world? Aren't you tired of looking on the news and seeing another child locked in a closet? Seeing another person shot for the color of their skin? Another war happening in another country because people think that that's their land that they should take. And it's not saying that all power is bad. Not every parent is abusive, most aren't. Not every politician is corrupt. Not every police officer 
is corrupt. Most aren't. A lot of you are police officers doing everything you can to protect this area. But we can't deny that oppression exists. And the church cannot deny it. Parents cannot deny that abuse happens in households. Spouses cannot deny that abuse happens within marriage. We can't deny as a church that this doesn't happen all over the globe in churches. It's there. And where the world operates on the principle of karma, what comes around goes around, the Bible says, no, there's just evil in this world. And a lot of times, people who are doing everything they can to try to live and to honor God and to be decent people get oppressed by evil people. And so what this passage gives us permission to is simply weep. We need to weep over the brokenness of this power in this world. And listen, some of you are here and you've been abused and you're broken because you've been abused. And some of you have been the abuser and you're broken because you're the abuser. But the good news of the gospel is that there's hope for the broken. And that healing can happen, but it doesn't happen under the sun. It happens from the one who's above the sun. Amen? And so he goes on to another form of oppression. Now, I told you that that was dark, okay? So that's dark. Now we're going to go on to another type of brokenness that we all face in the world. And it gets better from here. It gets better from here. This is work-related brokenness. The second type of brokenness in this passage is work-related brokenness. He says in verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and the striving after the wind. So the second type of brokenness is work-related brokenness, and he highlights one type of work-related brokenness, which is envy. Envy, or, or competitive work. Working because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses. Working because you're trying to uh, be the best at your business or the best employee better than somebody else. And you're, it's a type of work that's constantly comparing yourself to other people. Um, nobody wants to have a company with a product, right? Who wants to be that company? You want to be the best company with the best product. We see this on our commercials. I was watching, uh, you know, Ford commercials and Chevy commercials. So Chevy has a truck, the Chevy Colorado, and it's like, this is the most fuel-efficient truck, uh, economy truck on the market. And then Ford F-150 literally just built a truck, and they said, the new F-150, no other truck like it. It's like, there's lots of trucks like it all over. <laughs> Built Ford tough, toughest trucks on the planet. Like, we want to be the best. And what we see on those commercials is deeply embedded into our hearts. So if you're a teacher, you want to be the best teacher. You, you're always comparing yourself to other people. You're, you're uh, jealous even sometimes about other people getting recognition and awards and not you. And what he's saying is that even a lot of successful people in this world, if you look at the heart of their success, it's not something godly, it's envy. It's envy, competitive envy. And you might say, well, that's not me. I'm not like this, this is my category. But if you have ever felt like you're not measuring up, that you're not good enough, if you've ever felt like a failure, um, it's because even 
even so you have a competitive heart. You're, you're comparing yourself. If you're a mom in here and you're looking at other moms and you're like, I'm such a failure. It's because you're comparing yourself to other moms. If you're, if you're an employee and you're looking at other people and you're looking at what they're doing and, and, you're, and you're appreciating their skill, but you're just looking at yourself and you're like, I'm a failure. It's because you have this envy in your heart. This is something that resides in all of us. And some of us are gonna be really tempted towards this category, okay? So that's the first type of work-related brokenness. The second type of work-related brokenness is lazy. Let's be honest. Some of you in this room are infected with envy. Others of you are infected with lazy. You're lazy. You don't want to work. You, you don't want to work hard. You want to do the bare minimum to survive. That's another type of brokenness because God created us to work. God created Adam and Eve and put him in the garden. What's the first thing he gave them to do? To work it and to keep it. So you don't get to be lazy. God created you to work and to work hard. Um, there's a new term out there called adultolescence. It's actually been around for a few years, but uh, studies in America have shown that years ago, when you were 19, you started to be an adult, function on your own, live independently, start a family. Now, guess what that age in America is? 29. <laughs> and I'm speaking to some of you right now. You need to get a job. Get off the video games and get a job. I don't care if it's not your ideal job. Nobody starts at the top anyways. It's not true what you see on TV. Like not every job's gonna be Google. Get a job. You need, some of you are infected with lazy. It says here, um, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So some people are working, 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 but what the fool does here is he's just like, no, I don't want to work. Little sleep, little slumber, little folding of the hands, little taking a nap, little binge-watching Netflix. And it says that he eats his own flesh. So in an agrarian society, when you worked, you would go out there and you'd work with your hands and you'd, gra you'd be able to gather food and then you could eat the food. But when you're just sitting there and you're not working and you're just folding your hands, you have nothing to eat, so you just start eating yourself. And it's, here's what it's saying. When you're lazy, it's self-destruction because you're created to work. You're created to work. And so sometimes this means not just working a job, it also means working around the house. Uh, some wives in here are tired because their husbands are just sitting on the couch and sometimes vice versa. It means you were created to work, okay? So another type of work-related brokenness is lazy. Okay, the third type of work-related brokenness is, um, is discontent, discontent. Verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Now, what's interesting, when you look at these words in the original language, the, the words for hand is different in this. One is a hand that means um, content, and that's full of something, so a handful of quietness, meaning, meaning you can work a little and you can rest, and you have a good work-rest balance, and you're content. And then the other has this idea of hollow hands. 
that you're working, but you're never satisfied. You always want more. It doesn't matter how much you grab. It's never enough because you have hollow hands and you always want more. You work and work and work and work, and you can never shut it down. Here's another type of work-related brokenness. You never shut it down. You never take a day off. Even on your days off, you're checking your email. You're writing the next report. You're working, working, working. Even when you're supposed to be at home, what are you thinking about? Work. A lot of leaders and people who are owners of companies, this is their problem. They're working, going from one thing to another to another. They're always pursuing another opportunity. They're working, 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 working. Always working. I know this as a pastor because this is a pastor's, one of their chief problems. Because there's always more gospel work to be done. There's always another sermon to write, which takes sometimes uh, 12 to 20 hours. There's always another uh, email to respond to, another person to meet with, more leaders to train, more people to care for. There's always more, 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 another problem to handle. Like, so I put my kids down, and then what do I do? I pull out my computer, and I start answering email, and I start working, 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 and then before you know it, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, I've been working, 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 working. This is another type of brokenness. And some of you are broken in your work because you cannot shut it down. And the reason why is because we cannot let God reign. God gave us the gift of Sabbath where we can rest because when we rest, we say, God, I'm resting because you're reigning. But when we cannot rest, we're saying, you're not doing a good enough job reigning and controlling everything, so I'm going to do that. You rest, God, I'll work. And that's incredibly proud. That's another type of work-related brokenness. Is this kind of brokenness affecting you or your home? The fourth type of work-related brokenness is, I'll call it success-oriented isolation. You guys got that? Yeah? Success-oriented isolation. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of this pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is the person who is successful. They have made a good career. They have made money. They're doing really well for themselves. But they realize after a period of time that they focus so much on the success of tomorrow that they miss out on the relationships of today. And so some of you are like this right now. You're, you're working and you're just focusing on, on, on you know, getting that next degree, um, making it up the corporate ladder, starting this new endeavor, but you're missing out on your kids growing up. Some of you are in this room and you sit here with a little sorrowness in your heart because you look at your kids and you realize you missed their childhood. You didn't intend to. You weren't planning to. You just did because you were focused on the success of tomorrow. Uh, The commentator Gibson says that this is the guy who has all the money to buy all the the dinners of the people in the restaurant, but he has no friends with whom he can buy dinner. He misses out on relationships. Success is not everything, people. And when we work so much that we can't focus on relationships, you're missing something, and you have work-related brokenness. The great preacher Matt Chandler says, Uh, In one of his sermons on this passage, he says he's had lots of girls coming into his office that he's had to counsel. Not one of them has sat on his couch crying because their daddy dropped them off in an old beat-up Ford pickup at school. But he's had several girls who've been incredibly broken because their dads drove $60,000 cars 
and worked and worked and worked and worked, and they don't even know who their dad is. And some of you might be in that category right now, and this passage might be a call to repentance for you. In fact, for all of us, we have to ask ourselves, in which category am I broken when it comes to work? Am I, do I have competitive envy? Am I lazy? Am I discontent? Or am I of success-oriented isolation? Those are the work-related brokenness. Okay, now you guys ready for the next category of brokenness? This is fun, isn't it? Aren't you guys having fun right now? Like, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is an equal opportunity offender. He just offends everybody, okay? All right, next type of brokenness, community. Community brokenness. Um, here's what you need to know about this. When the Hebrews talked about community, they often talked about it as a journey. Or, I mean, excuse me, when they talked about life, they talked about life as a journey. You're going through this journey of life. You've heard that language before. Um, and the, the first point that he has here is that the journey of life is better in community. The journey of life is better in community. In verses 9 through 12, he gives this illustration of somebody on a journey, and he's talking about life here, okay? It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's this journey of life. He says, you need community in your journey of life. You know why? Because if you fall down, you're going to have somebody to pick you up. And the, here's the truth. You're going to fall down in this life. You're going to misstep. You're going to screw up. And sometimes you're going to fall down simply because life is hard. And you know what you need? Community to pick you up. You need some friends. You need people who love you. You need the church to be there for you. And sometimes we like, we're in community until we fall down. And then we think, no, 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 it's too embarrassing to admit that I've fallen. I'm going to do this on my own. No, you need community when you've fallen to pick you up. To fall is a normal experience of a sinful life. But you need community there to pick you up. Secondly, he says, another reason why when you're on a journey, you have the two lie together and keep warm. So in the Middle East, it was kind of like the high desert. If you're traveling, let's say you're traveling, you had to walk from here to Carson City, you know, or here to Gardnerville, and you might have to stay the night. If you're by yourself, that's really lonely. It's really scary. You know, that's, you get cold. But if you have a companion, you can snuggle, keep warm. It's nice. And there's a truth to this, that going through life, it's better to have somebody with you. The best things in life are better when there's community to celebrate with you. I remember going to a theme park and I was going on all the roller coasters. I'm like, I just want, I would love to have my kids here right now just to see that because it's, you share the joy together, you know? Um, when you're having a good meal, like I know occasionally, especially if you have a, like kids and like a meal alone sounds just like heaven right now. But like, think about it over and over and over again. Um, to eat a good meal it's not the same if you don't have people to share it with. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who recently decided to get a divorce. And um, I said, what are you noticing? He's like, you know, the silence kills me. I've noticed that I always have to have the TV on or music on because I can't sit down at the dinner table and eat a meal in complete silence. Like, the best things in life, even the little things in life, are better when you have companions to share it with. 
And some of you know the pain of that because you're widowed or divorced or um, you've been alone, you're single and you want to be with somebody, but you're just not right now. And that's why we need to be a church together where we can be a family together. And then the third reason why he gives here is because if people come against you, you're gonna have people to back you up. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So if, if marauders or, or people were to harm you on your journey or try, try to steal your stuff, if you have people who have your back, they're not gonna get at you. And in life, you need people to have your back. You need friends to stick up for you. Because this is a cruel, harsh world in which people will attack you and you need people to have your back. You need community. We were made for community. This is why the Bible calls us family. It's why the Bible calls us sheep. You know, uh, sheep don't really have any defense against the enemy except for community. When they're bunched up together, there's way less of a likelihood of them getting attacked than if they're isolated. The one who's isolated always gets picked off by the wolves. They don't have fangs. They can't defend themselves, okay? This isn't Monty Python, you know? Like, they, they can't defend themselves. They have to huddle up together. That's their only form of defense. Your sheep, our only hope of defense in this life is to huddle up together and to cling to our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. We need to be together. Um, we need community. Now, community's hard. I don't think, I think everybody in this room wants deeply down. We want to be known and we want to know other people. We want to be in community, but it's so scary because we've been hurt so many times. And so to be in community, it takes a handful of things. First of all, it takes enduring effort. It's not going to be easy. That's why this passage says the toil. It calls community toil in verse 9. It's toil. It's hard work. Community doesn't happen overnight. It takes hard work. I'm developing some good, close friends. I've never had friends like this in my entire life, but it's taken seven years to get there. The other day we were sitting around and be like, hey, we're really close friends. You know, this is awesome. And we're like, seven years ago, we started having this relationship. And we've had to go through ups and downs. It takes hard work. It takes hard work. Um, Secondly, it takes courage. Because you have to like put yourself out there. It takes courage to let yourself be known, doesn't it? Especially if you've been really hurt in the past. It takes courage to put your heart out there. It takes a lot of courage. I have friends who are pastors in Denver and they realize that they've been ministering all these years but they don't have any friends. And they said, man, this needs to change. So they invited six people over to the house, three couples, and they served them dinner. And then in the middle of the dinner, Uh, My friend Vince just stood up and said, I have an announcement to make. Well, it's actually a request. Might be a little weird, but will you guys be our friends? We need friends. (laughs) And we don't have any, and we want to share our life with you. Go straight back to second grade, you know? But listen, this is where some of you need to start. Some of you, it's just pick up the phone, go out to coffee with somebody, go to community group, and maybe you'll meet a friend there, and then just say, hey, I need a friend. Will you be my friend? Do you have the courage to do that? And then it takes humility because only those who have humility humility will do that because humility says, I can't do this on my own. I need help. I need help. And then lastly, it takes forgiveness. The real reason why we don't want to do that is because we have deep wounds and hurts and we won't ever be able to do that until we can forgive other people. You need to forgive. And guess what? Your new friends, they're going to hurt you real bad. And in order for you to maintain relationship for the long haul, you're going to have to learn how to forgive. And they're going to have to learn how to forgive you because you're going to hurt them real bad. You can't, like, putting one sinner 
and then another sinner in a room together, that's not like a positive equation, okay? Like that will produce conflict. But one of the best things in life is we get to forgive each other and experience the love of Jesus Christ. So first of all, the journey of life is better with friends. Uh, Second of all, it says here in verse 13 through 16 that um, wisdom is found in community. And it talks in verse 13, it's a little confusing passage. It says in verse 13, better is a poor wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. And he goes on and basically he talks about, it's better for this poor young person who knows that they need counsel and they need community. That person's gonna be better off than a guy who becomes a king, gets all that he wants, gets power, grows old, and then thinks that he knows it all. And here's the temptation that he's getting at. The older you get, the more you're gonna start to think you have things figured out. The older you get, you're gonna be like Jerry Seinfeld. You're gonna be like, I don't need more friends. I got my three people. But the older you get, you're gonna start to think, I don't need to listen to other people because I got things figured out. Um, there's going to be a temptation to become more and more isolated. Some of you have gone through this and you've seen this happen with your parents. And you've just seen as they've grown old and gotten to their last days that they've become isolated because they thought that they kind of just had things figured out and they didn't want to continue putting themselves out there. That's the temptation. But you need to fight against that because still, it doesn't matter how long you live on this earth, you need community until the end. So don't grow proud. You might have a lot of age experience and wisdom, but you still need people to speak counsel into your life. And that's not me, the young pastor, saying that. That's God in the Bible saying that. Okay, so that's the brokenness of community. Now he gets to the last type of brokenness, and this is the brokenness of religion. And this is in chapter five, verses one through seven. Now, if you're new to church, you might be asking the question, why are we critiquing religion here? Why is the Bible talking about the brokenness of religion? Aren't we, isn't this religion that we're, we're participating in? And the answer is yes. But did you know that the Bible, you know, you, you often hear Christians critique people outside the church, but guess who the Bible critiques most often? Those inside the church. Because here's the reality. Brokenness is not just out there, it's in here because it's in all of us, and it affects our worship. And so uh, it says in verse five, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now listen up to this, church people. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So the first type of religion-related brokenness is worship that's hasty and heartless. Do you hear me? Worship that's hasty and heartless. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you're coming to church, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Watch your steps. Don't just be quick to just 
come in through the door and then just start your singing of songs and, you know, and, 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 and your serving ministry and, and to doing this and to giving of your tithes and offerings and all your prayers. Like, don't just think about what you're doing. Think about the one you're approaching. You're not just approaching another friend. You're not just approaching your boss at work. And you approach him with some level of reverence. You're approaching the God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who by his word gives life to all things and who by his word can take life from all things. You're approaching the one who gives every person and every creature their heartbeat and the one who's holding the expanse of the universe together. You're approaching the living God. When we gather at church on Sunday, we're not just gathering to feel good about ourselves and learn some good moral teachings. We're gathering to be in the presence of the living God. I tell people when we're we're praying over the gathering that that people are going to come here and they're going to encounter the living God. You're going to sit in these chairs and you're going to experience the Alpha, the Omega the beginning and the end of all life. This is who we're approaching. And it's critiquing us because we're so quick to just come into the presence of God and just do our religious worship, but not listen to what he has to say. We're so quick to express our own opinions, aren't we? The highest standard of truth in the American people right now is your own opinion, and it's false. Your opinion is under God's opinion. And so we have to think about the one we're approaching. And it says, let your words be few. You should draw near to listen, not draw near to be quick to speak. As your mama used to say, you have two ears and one mouth. So listen up. And this is what we ought to be doing when we come and gather with God. We ought to be seeking to listen. And the Hebrew understanding of listening was not just hearing the information and let it go to our heads. The Hebrew understanding of listening was listening with an intent to obey. And so let not your worship be hasty. In, in other words, you're not thinking about who you're worshiping and let not your worship be heartless in that you listen, but you actually don't want to obey in your heart. And that you come here on Sundays and you sing your hallelujahs and you do this and you hear what the Bible says, but you walk out and you live as if you're the king of your own life. That's heartless worship. Don't come up to the table and receive communion and say, Jesus is my Savior and he is my Lord. And then go live Monday through Saturday as if you're the Lord of your life. As if you're the Lord of your own sexuality. As if you're the Lord of your own money. As if you're the Lord of your own family. The Lord of your own job. The Lord of your own life. You're not the Lord of your own life. As Christians, this is what we're recognizing. He is our Lord. He is our King. And so when we gather, we we do it with trembling, like a holy fear because of who we're approaching. And then he says in verse four, let not your worship basically be uh, lack integrity. Another type of brokenness in our worship is worship that lacks integrity. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, he says. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not pay or not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You know what God hates? When you make a promise to him and then the next day you're like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. You know why? Because it's a matter of importance. 
You only break promises with people that aren't that important to you. But when they're elevated in your heart and mind, you're gonna keep your word. You don't even have to make a promise to them because you're gonna keep your word. This is why Jesus says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Vows in the Old Testament were permitted. They weren't commanded, but you were allowed to say, I vow this to you, God. I wanna give you my whole life as an expression that you're the most important thing in my life. But don't make that kind of vow and then back out. Don't vow to God, you know what, God, we're gonna tithe this year and then not tithe. Don't vow to God, you know what, I'm gonna fast this many times this year and then not fast. Don't say, God, if you get me out of this bind, I'll give you my whole life. And then he gets you out of the bind and you don't do it. God ought to be the most important thing in our life. You know why I think American, the American church is in decline right now? Because Christians don't take God that seriously. I think it's really simple. But what if we could become this kind of church? Like, what if we could be the church like where everybody around is talking about, they're like, yeah, those living stoners, they're kind of crazy, but they take God seriously. I bet you people will flock to God if we start taking God seriously. We need to take ourselves less seriously and him more seriously. And so these are the types of brokenness that we have. Uh, we have brokenness of power, brokenness of work, brokenness of community, and brokenness of religion. And when you look at that, it kind of sounds scattered, doesn't it? You're like, how in the world does this all make sense and tie together? Well, isn't that how life feels a lot of times? I don't know about you, but I wake up and I go through a given day and I'm like, I'll, you know, I'm all upset about this thing in my life. And then the next moment I'm all upset about this thing in my life and then this thing in my life and this thing in my life. And what the wisdom literature here does for us is it says, yeah, that's all part of the human experience. We are broken in lots of different ways, if not all of them. And so what this passage does is it serves as a sort of MRI or x-ray to point out our brokenness. In November, I woke up one morning with just killer pain down my leg, sciatica pain all the way into my foot. I couldn't sleep. Um, I was like stealing drugs to just try to make it through the day. You know, not really. I wasn't selling drugs. <laughs> but I would have. I would have. If, anybody, if somebody would have offered me anything, I would have taken it because that's how bad the pain was. And if you've had back pain, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and this went on for weeks and I went to a doctor and I went to a physical therapist and they said, look, you need to get an MRI because unless we can identify the brokenness, you can't be healed. And in many ways, this is what this passage is doing. It's serving as a sort of MRI to bring the brokenness to the front of your mind so that you can actually be healed. Jesus himself says to me, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to heal the righteous, but the sinful. In other words, you could say that Jesus says, if you're willing to admit that you're broken, he came to heal you. But if you're not willing to face your brokenness, there's no hope for you. But if you're willing to admit that you're broken, there's hope for you from heaven. And I'm gonna just draw your attention to verse two, where the author says at the end of it, he says, remember, you are on earth and God is in heaven. This world says you need to fix your brokenness. You know your brokenness, you need to try harder. You need to believe in yourself, believe in the light. It says, look at you, but the Bible says, look up. If you look up to the one who is above the sun, then there's hope for the broken. And the good news of the Bible is that it doesn't just stop in Ecclesiastes with an author saying, yeah, there's a lot of brokenness. It finishes with a God who came into our brokenness to heal us from it, amen? And that's what Jesus came to do. If you're broken because of religion, Jesus came to heal your broken religion. 
because he says, you know what? You don't have to come and do all these things for God. Think about what you're offering to God. You can just receive what God has offered to you. He says to you, come to me, all who are, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of you in this room today are broken because you've been trying and trying and trying and trying to, to impress God, and you're failing hard. And God says, you don't need to try to impress me. Just receive what I have for you. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Some of you are broken um, in community. You don't even know how to step into those kind of loving relationships. And Jesus says to you first, greater love has no one than this one, someone who would lay down his life for his friends. Start with me, Jesus says. Let me be your friend. And then he also says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So as you go through this journey of life and you put your heart out there, you need to know you're not alone as you do that. Jesus is right there with you, calling you into community. And then some of you are broken, you know, because of your work. And it all comes down to purpose and identity. The reason why you can't stop working is because it's your whole identity. But now Jesus gives you a new identity. You're a child of God who doesn't have to work to impress anybody because you already have the full approval of your father in heaven. And then some of you, you're lazy because you don't have purpose. But Jesus says, now you belong to me and I've given you my spirit and you have purpose. And as you go out there and you work hard at a job, you're bringing the heaven to earth. And I've placed you where you are. And then some of us are broken because of oppression. Some of us are the victims of oppression and some of us are the perpetrators of oppression. And there's healing for us too in that in the cross. You know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he wasn't just becoming the sins that man did. He was becoming the sins that people did against man. He was becoming the abused. He was becoming the violated. And he was doing that so that you could be healed. And if you are here broken because of the oppression that's been done to you, you need to know that Jesus knows your pain. And he says, come to me and by my stripes you may be healed. And then some of you are broken here and you think there's no forgiveness for you because you've been the abuser. But on the cross, Jesus became that too. All the sins of the world were placed on him. And he was killed between two criminals. And one criminal looked at him and said, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The cross is the only place in the world where both the abused and the abuser can find healing at the same time. And so there's healing for you, but you gotta come to Jesus. If you don't come to Jesus, you're just gonna try to fix yourself under the sun. And the phrase that keeps showing up in this passage is you're just striving after wind. It's like trying to catch wind. You're never gonna get there. But if you come to Jesus, you'll be healed. This is why the New Testament saints, when they greeted one another, they used the word Maranatha. And the word Maranatha simply means come Lord Jesus. Because they realize that Jesus has come to heal our hearts, but one day he's gonna come to heal the world. And when he returns again, He's gonna wipe away every tear from every eye and make all things new so that no longer will there be any brokenness in this world. And we look forward to that day, Maranatha. But you gotta to come to Jesus now. Let's pray. Lord, um, Maranatha, come quickly. We take great comfort in the fact that you see all the oppression, you see all the brokenness. And while it destroys us, it does not inhibit you or your ability to heal. We pray, God, that you would help us to come to you. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray, God, that we really can be healed by your power because we've tried to fix ourselves and it never works. I pray for those in this room who 
are tired of trying and try, you know, just feel like they're continually falling on their face, I pray that you would meet them where they're at and pick them up and give rest to their souls. I pray for those who are lazy in this room and don't want to work and don't want to make any effort and kind of just live life